Does everybody have... There's two handouts, one with a staple and one that's just double-sided. So two, two important vital pieces of paper, or three pieces of paper. Okay, great. I think that they, they, they told me to hand out an extra copy for you over there. So. All right. Um, let's start with a word of prayer. Krista requested, she would, missed the early devotion, but requested a prayer for her brother Dieter, who's having surgery. So we'll, um, let's, let's say a, a brief prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for bringing us together to be with you and to hear your word and to learn what you would have us know so that we can be worthy, made worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We pray this morning that you would especially watch over Dieter as he undergoes surgery, keep him safe, and grant him your health. We pray this all in your most holy name. Amen. Yes. All right. So, we are on chapter 31 in Kenneth Bailey, which is it's providential, I would say, because this... Uh, this passage, this pericope, comes just before Palm Sunday in the, in Luke. So we are we're not only you know um, getting to enjoy the parable, but we're enjoying it in the liturgical context in which it falls. So that is Luke chapter nineteen, verses eleven through twenty-seven, chapter thirty-one of Kenneth Bailey. And why don't we start? Um, why don't we start just by hearing it read? Would, is there a volunteer, somebody who would like to read the parable for us? Chap, uh, Luke, Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. All right. All right, thank you. So now, um, I found this chapter in Kenneth Bailey very helpful. He, he, he highlights parts of the parable which I think are, are otherwise very easy to pass over, as he, as he usually does. He brings out some of the details which are very helpful for interpreting it. But I wonder if we could just spend a second um, reflecting on how you normally read this parable. If you, if you had to summarize it, Forgetting what you may have read in Bailey, if you had to summarize it, how would you summarize it? Or if you had to retell it in just a couple of a, sen- a couple of sentences, how would you do it, Carol? At least tomorrow, where he's often tied to the Right. Yeah. Good. Yeah, and that's especially true if you have a Bible which translates um, the word for mina as talent. Right. We have this great, this. Um, felicitous ambiguity here. So the, um, the word refers to a unit of Greek currency, um, but also in English it happens to refer to you know, our talents, the things that, things that we are good at. So we often hear it in that context, and it, we, you know, we're, we point out the, the, the irony and say, hey, this is, or the coincidence, and say, this is about being good managers of your talents or, or your money, too. Right, good, good. Anything else? Any other, any other uh, summaries? Anything that's different? Krista? If you're just saying, oh, at least 
it's not valid anymore what, what Jesus said because when you bring your money to the bank you don't give too much you don't you don't that's <laughs> that's absolutely right <laughs> so it, <laughs> yep so so these days you're better off hiding in a napkin you earn more by doing that than putting it in the bank right right absolutely <laughs> good um okay well let's spend a little while um talking about what Bailey brings out. He has a lot of great observations. I have all kinds of notes that I've wrote in the car- margins, um, things, that, things that are really helpful to know about the parable. So what are some of the things that, that, that strike you that Bailey brings out which help you to understand the parable? Nancy. Right. More than what, what you actually do with it. Um, not being ashamed. Yes. And, and I think that that, that is such a, an important point. It, I mean, when I read this parable, when I've read this parable, I've always sort of passed over the part about the guy going off to another country to inherit a kingdom. And I'd said to myself, you know, well, that's interesting. I wonder what that means. And then forget about it, right? Um, but it's, it's essential to the story. So the guy, the nobleman, is going off into another country... Um, to inherit a kingdom, but uh, it's and as a result, it's uncertain whether he's going to return, except for what he expresses. So he says, you know, invest your money as though I'm coming back. Um, but you know, in reality, he has enemies. Um, and if you go, Bailey gave the example of um, the two Herods who went to Rome seeking kingship, and the one you know was successful. He got. Got, received his kingship, but the other one was, uh, I don't remember if he was exiled or just he didn't, su- didn't succeed. Um, and so it's a risky venture. Um, and as a result, what happens then is the servants who are left behind have to weigh the, weigh the options. So if they, if they behave in a way which shows their loyalty to this man who may be king, um, then they're going to make enemies, but if he comes back, they're in pretty good shape. However, if they betray him, um, or if they, they prove to be unfaithful with what he's left them, then they demonstrate that they're not really good servants. Um, so, I mean, that's, it, it, the context is, is really essential um, to understand what the king is asking these people to do. He's not simply asking them to, um, you know, to, to, to make him some money. It's a test. It's, it's, it has very little to do with the money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're quick to, like, match up the talents and, like, what a coincidence, but mm-hmm. it's talking directly about our faithfulness. And, you know, I mean, there's so many parallels now that I'm making in my head about Jesus inheriting this kingdom and mm-hmm. people who despise him and he comes back to see who has been faithful. Right. And whether it's in your money or your talents or your heart. Yep. I don't know. And, and he... He's not interested in, in results either. He's interested in what's going on in your heart. Um, and here, here's another you know, matter of faith. Um, so we're asked to be faithful um, even though we may never see the results of our faithfulness in this life. In fact, we may see the exact opposite. We got this quotation from Mother Teresa, which is running as a margin comment on Easter. 
This is the second quotation on the back of that sheet with the picture. And so Pastor Bruzek mentioned this in his sermon at Morning Eucharist yesterday as well. This is a fantastic quotation. She says, If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends, some true enemies, succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. When What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. Build anyway. And as Christians, um, what it amounts to is our, our understanding that, uh, as, as um, Isaiah says, the word of the Lord never returns empty. So when we, when we are faithful and when we show Christ to the world, um, there will be fruit, even if we don't see it. There, and that's... That's all there is to it. Um, it's a cross to bear because we suffer. We suffer on account of this. Um, you see that Luther quotation. I've mentioned this one um, before. It's right above the Mother Teresa quotation. He, in talking about um, the need for the sacrament of the altar, he says, Only begin to act as though you would be godly and adhere to the gospel and see whether no one will become your enemy. And moreover, do you harm, wrong, and violence and likewise give you cause for sin and vice. So, I mean, the opportunity for uh, suffering as a Christian is, is immense. All you have to do is start acting a little bit like a Christian and you will suffer. It's, it's one of the... It, it, I've been reflecting on this in, in John chapter 15. I'm preaching on, this for, on that text for a Wednesday or Thursday coming up here. Jesus is talking to the disciples about... Um, you know, this is, this is my commandment that you love one another. But then he goes on and says... Um, Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Um, and we often think of Jesus' promises as always being, you know, we, we tend to put them in, in, in terms of a theology of glory. So Jesus promises us great things which, whose benefits we see even now. But he says he promises us that we'll be persecuted. It's a promise. We will suffer, um, you know, even as he did. Uh, so, so it's kind of a scary prospect, but that's that's a promise of his, right? Why does he say that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it, it has to do with your perspective, um, knowing that that Jesus turns the world upside down, and that what he sees as good, the world often sees as evil. What he sees as easy, the world often sees as hard. Um, these things, you know, turn the world upside down. So. Um, Jesus' yoke is easy in that we have consolation which the world can't give. So the world uh, puts, its, puts its trust in uh, temporal glory and temporal honor, success, things like that, but they eventually fail. They will, you know, no matter which way you turn, it will all fail. Um, and so it's, it's a temporary thing, but he gives us the peace which the world cannot give, the peace which passes, surpasses all understanding. Um, but it's only by faith. So it's, uh, and, and in that sense, it's easy as well because we can't, we can't sort of manufacture that piece on our own. Um, right. It is, but that's, that's the theology of the cross. So um, we, we, we look to the cross and see peace in the fact that Jesus suffered violently for our sins. It's, it's backwards, but that's how it works. Anything else? Any other thoughts along this line? Right, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It, it's, it's true. Yeah, so um, 
they're comforted. Um, but you know, we also have this consolation that um, Jesus was even afraid of the suffering that was before him. Um, so, so that puts things in perspective as well. Jesus doesn't promise, doesn't promise us that we're never going to fear or we're never going to doubt. Um, so in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, he asks that this cup would pass from him. And um, he sweats blood, according to Luke, which is this physiological response to immense fear. You know, it's, um, it's a real, he was really suffering and was really afraid of being forsaken. Yeah. Lately I've been thinking about, like, I think sometimes it's harder for us to believe this because in our society and in the world we live in, like, things are really easy. Yeah. You know, like, we don't really have to suffer that much. We're not persecuted as Christians. Yeah. Really. You know, our lives aren't that difficult. I'm not, like, out in the fields working while pregnant with my baby. <laughs> you know, like, and, and but then, like, the people that live in a more persecuted society, I think it's almost easier for them to kind of embrace right. that theology. Yeah, that's a, it's a very good point. It's, it's something, so we do need to reflect at some point in this study about how, how this comes home for us. Um, Bailey gives, I think it's interesting to, to notice the examples where people are, where it is sort of easier for them to demonstrate their faithfulness. So Bailey gives this example of the Latvians um, and how when they're ordaining, when, they, when there are men who are interested in entering the ministry, they ask, they, the most important question they ask is, when were you baptized? And if the answer is that they were baptized during Soviet occupation of Latvia, then, then it's easy to know, you know the faithfulness of these men because that was uh, something which put them in great danger. If, though, you find out they waited until after Soviet occupation, um, you know, there have to be more questions which are asked. Um, that, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, and that's, that's true, you know, in, in all kinds of historical situations. It's, um, per, suffering, suffering produces perseverance and character and hope, right? Um, I, I give you this article from the Wall Street Journal just a couple of days ago. Let's see, this would have been Monday. About, uh, it's tr- I really caught, caught me off guard, this, this church in Kabul, um, the only permanent church operating in the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. So I was always under the impression that you couldn't have, you couldn't have a church, a public church in an is- Islamic Republic. But they, so they permit this church to exist as long as um, they don't, convert anybody, because, you know, converting from Islam to Christianity is a capital offense. Um, and if the church was doing any evangelism, they would be booted immediately. But the, the thing that caught my attention was, so this church has been around since, since the early 1900s, um, uh, but then the, the, or there have been, so the origins of the church in 1921, but then the church's building in 1960, things were peaceful in the 70s. And then, um, then came the Soviet invasion in 1979. I'm on the second page now. Um, and in 1990, this is the fourth paragraph from the bottom, 1990, Father Moretti became the church's sole caretaker. Um, and so the church is within the walls of the Italian embassy, or at that time was within the walls of the Italian embassy. In 93, the embassy closed. Um, and then in 1994, there was an attack which, which, um, which injured the priest. So he had, he had to leave the country to um, to get the care that he needed, um, but then on the on the last page, the top paragraph, you hear you hear about how things went. As Father Moretti recovered, three nuns living in Kabul continued to conduct prayers at the church 
remaining even after the Taliban takeover in 1996. Even though the Taliban's religious police moved in next door, the Taliban didn't interfere. Um, and Father Moretti didn't come back until 2001. So he was gone for, you know, seven years. Um, and it would have been a legitimate question to ask, you know, are we ever going to have a priest again? You know, is, the, is this church going to, you know, just sort of die away? Or are we going to have, you know, the sustenance that, that comes with preaching and the sacraments? Um, but the, but the nuns were faithful. They continued to do the prayers and they, they, they behaved. As, I mean, I saw, I saw a parallel to the parable in that they behaved as though the priest was coming back. They, they, they just kept on going. Um, and so then the Italians uh, showed up um, in 2001 and they, they found the church there in the, in the ruins of the embassy and, and, the, and the people in the church. And it's just a small, small little church now, um, but... but uh, it's just this great story of resilience and perseverance. So the Father Moretti is 75, or he's going to be 75 this fall, um, and church rules require that he retire, but he's uh, lobbying to stay on, and then he, he, quote, he says at the end, the church will stay here the, the way it always has. Um, so, it's, I mean, it's a great example of faithfulness in um, the, the most dire of circumstances. So the, the, the Muslims next door are... The, the, the only thing holding them back is that you haven't made the wrong move yet, right? That's the only thing keeping them from, from booting you and, um, and, and being violent. So, anyway, t- you could take that home and, and uh, look at it a little bit if you like. It's, I thought it was a great story um, to reflect on. Okay, now what? Um, I wanted to uh, jump to the back, the back of the page with a picture on it one more time. Um, there's a uh, quotation in the tagline for that first quotation by Luther. It says, the temptation to risk little. So Luther, Luther's describing why we are tempted to risk little, because the world, the world uh, seeks to attack, attack us. And uh, Capon, who is writing on this parable, says that we're tempted to live what he calls a low-risk spiritual life, in which we neither sin much nor love much. And he gives the example of the Syrophoenician woman who um, was at the table and asked, you know, sort of pressed Jesus and said, give, you know, we, we studied this parable in, in this class, pressed Jesus and said, um, no, give me, give me the crumbs. Even the, dogs eat, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs. And so she, she risked much, risked, risked even sinning much, um, affronting the teacher, you know, almost disrespecting the rabbi, um, uh, but she, she loved much, much as well. Her faithfulness was demonstrated to a great extent. Um, and so you can, you can see how the two go hand in hand. And so my question, um, my question for you then is, as we consider this parable today, how is it that we are tempted, in really practical terms, can you think of in practical terms, how are we tempted to live a low-risk spiritual life where we neither sin much nor love much? Yeah. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, we we don't we don't feel like we have to. It's Christian enough. Good. Good. Yeah. Anything else? I mean, it's really it really is an interesting situation that we live in here in Wheaton. Um, it's it's unique. So it's such an evangelical town um, that it goes without saying. It, I mean, you don't even have to express your faith really um, 
it's just sort of assumed. So then how, maybe here's another question to consider. How would we, and this is, I suppose, a risky question, but how, how could we um, sort of, um, how can we take a risk? What, what can we do? Good. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah and, we, and we point everything back to what Jesus has asked us to do. So our life centers around preaching in the sacraments, you know, which is, which is absent from a lot, of, a lot of other churches, right? Good. Yeah, anything else? Yeah. Although it is, I mean, it is interesting to note that, that for some people, for some people, that is the, the most difficult thing is, you know, simply coming to church. Um, there's stuff going on on the weekend. Um, you know, the, the, it's, it's uncomfortable to be in a large group of people. You feel, you feel inferior or unworthy or something like that. That's, simply coming to church is really oftentimes a difficult thing. Oftentimes, that is alone the, the taking the risk, you know, um, putting, putting yourself out there. Let's go with Joanne here first. Sure. Right. Yeah. So there is a there is a stark contrast between what yeah how things are in Wheaton and how how they are in other parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Mary. You know you the, your description of how the sort of the the um, the joy that here is at, that that's at St John is is a, another way we can think about the risk that we we ought to take because. It's easy, I think, to um, to be very excited about coming to church and be very comfortable when we're here at church um, and be joyful and loving to each other because we have this thing in common. Um, but then to, to but then to think that all of the other people outside of the church are also people for whom Christ has died and to people to whom He would like to give Himself. Um, to think that way is, I mean, that's a, that's an incredible risk to uh, to go outside the church and carry that attitude. Um, because not everybody, not everybody's going to be as receptive as people are here at St. John. Not everybody's going to take the love that you give them. Um, that you know, that can be that can be painful. Carol. Yeah, and yeah, going when. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always, I'm always, sort of measuring progress. Just in general, that's the way I do things. I try to accomplish goals and, and measure my progress towards those goals, but. But being a Christian is sort of, that takes that away from you. You can't, I mean, your goal is to come to the table and to, to meet your Lord in heaven. I mean, that's, your progress towards that is, is not something that can be measured. And in fact, um, oftentimes it feels like we're going backward, right? Okay, so we had some couple more hands. Shirley. And... I mean, this is another thing to remember as well, that oftentimes there's, there's two ways you can look at this discussion about risk, and we can, take it on, we can, we can sort of take it on as an individual burden, which, um, which presses our consciences oftentimes, because, you know, risks are scary, and, um, and we're not very faithful. We're just, as people, we're not very faithful, but um, we have this great advantage that we have, a, we have this community, and God puts us into these communities where we can encourage each other and build each other up um, and, and demonstrate faithfulness as a whole, which is, um, which is, which is more than we can do as individuals. So that's, that's an excellent point as well, yeah. 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that, and that I mean, that plays true. Um, yeah, just in general, in the way our culture thinks about family, you know, it, we're we're so independent-minded on all fronts. Um, and it's true when we think about you know the church taking care of us as well. So um, the whole matter of, of stewardship really comes to a head here. You know, giving giving money to the church, knowing that the church is here to the church is here to take care of us as well. So um, that's a, yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's see. Um, I, I have a couple more quotations here. I'll, let me just quick glance and make sure we covered everything from Bailey that stood out. Um, he, uh, he noted a whole bunch of tiny things, which I, let me just point out to you real quickly. He says, um, he gives this great, this great uh, note about how it wasn't the, in, the investors, the, the uh, servants who earned the money, but the way they speak about the return on the investment is your pound produced 10 pounds. So the, the initial gift um, is what was profitable. It wasn't anything that, it wasn't, they didn't take credit in their own work. Um, it was, it was the, the, the gift of the nobleman that, that was successful or that was profitable. Okay. Which one was that? I was afraid. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, I mean, it shows it. So this is this is basic stuff, but it shows his attitude towards what he's received from the nobleman. Right. That that was a gift. Um, that that wasn't his to do with as he pleased. It was, it was something that was given to him. Um, you know, for the purposes that the nobleman had given it to him. But he took he took ownership of it, and imposed. His own views of the nobleman um, on the nobleman. So this is the next the next point to make. Um, Bailey makes this point really well, that uh, in the response of the the nobleman to the the last servant's behavior um, is really telling. He says, um, "I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. Um, you supposed that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. So he says, you thought I was this way? Okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be this way to you. Um, and Luther hits this, hits this point well in the, when he talks about the Lord's Supper. I give you this quotation here. It's the fourth quotation from the small catechism. We, you probably know this one pretty well. How can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Certainly not just eating and drinking do these things, but the words written here, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. These words, along with the bodily eating and drinking, are the main thing in the sacrament. Whoever believes these words has exactly what they say, the forgiveness of sins. Um, Likewise, if you believe that God is wrathful toward you, if you believe that he judges you based on your deeds and on your own righteousness, then that is what he does. Um, so we know, we, in some sense, we God is um, God ref- is behaves in the way that that is uh, that reflects the way we think of Him, and we see this 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 re- reference to the Psalm that Bailey gives is so is so helpful here. Um, it's on page four hundred five in the book, Psalm eighteen, verses twenty five to twenty six. The psalmist says, 
With the loyal, thou dost show thyself loyal. With the blameless man, thou dost show thyself blameless. With the pure, thou dost show thyself pure. And with the crooked, thou dost show thyself twisted. Um, and I mean, it's a reflection of how, how faith plays a role in our relationship with God. Um, if we trust what God says, then, then it is ours. If we don't trust it, then it isn't ours. If we don't believe these words, then the forgiveness of sins isn't ours, um, and God is wrathful toward us. Um, so, so, I mean, so we're called upon to believe. Any thoughts, questions, comments? It's, I mean, this is, this is sort, of, sort of basic stuff, but it really comes out strongly in this parable, um, which I, I hadn't seen before. Take a look at this second to last quotation on the page. Um, Capon has uh, some interesting remarks. Again, he's helpful to supplement what Bailey says. But let me just read this quotation for you. This comes at the, near the end of his treatment of the parable. He says, The precise form that the condemned servant's unfaith took was the hiding of the coin in a napkin. What that says to me is that if we keep Jesus only as a memento, or better said, if we keep the sacramentalities by which he disclosed the mystery only as events to be remembered, or as ideas and doctrines to be kept intact, we put ourselves out of the reach of his reconciliation. Because just as the nobleman was present to his servants in and through the coins, even in his apparent absence from them, so Jesus is present to us now, and he calls us to faith in him now. Jesus, our death, is with us now. Jesus, our resurrection, is with us now. And Jesus, our vindicating judge, is with us now. If only now we will believe, not think, because all we will ever think of on our own is the God-awful God we have made in the image of our worst fears. So the, the, the difference between holding Jesus as a memento and holding Jesus in the way that he gives himself to us, in the flesh, um, in his word, and in flesh in the supper, um, that difference is night and day. So either we just sort of pond, we just sort of remember Jesus and think of him, you know, fondly, or we know that he's he's here with us now, even though it seems like he's not. Um, and that changes the way we think about faithfulness. Um, if you're just anxiously waiting for Jesus to return, not not ever seeing him, not ever hearing from him. Um, it's incredibly difficult to be faithful. And you, you, you know, your, your confidence that he's going to return fails. But if we know that Jesus is, is here and returns to us, you know, every time that we meet, every time that we receive his blessings, um, then, then it's not, he's, not, he's not only off in a distant country, but he's also here with us to strengthen us. So he invites us then... Um, to, to live our lives in light of this reality. So um, we have the final day coming sometime in the future. We don't know when it is, but at the same time, we already have Jesus here with us, with us now, um, and we live our lives in that light. Does that make sense? Um, so for the, for, the, for the guy who had the one coin that hid it in a napkin, he didn't understand. He didn't understand that what was given to him was... The, it was the very presence of the nobleman. It was, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't just a token. Okay. Any questions? Comments?
Yeah. Oh, well, I didn't realize there was such a thing. Exactly. I think it, I think it's the best chapter I've read in Bailey so far. Yeah, really, really well done. Yeah, Carol. Exactly. Isn't it remarkable? I mean, we so you just just gloss over it. You just the things that are difficult to understand. You sometimes just <laughs> ignore them. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad that you found it to be as helpful. Um, it's good. Um, take a look at the last quotation here. Um, this ties into, ties into the notion of Jesus um, being with us in reality. Um, let me just read it for you. It's from, it's, it's from Luther. God without flesh is useless. Upon the flesh of Christ, upon that infant clinging to the bosom of the virgin, you are to set your eyes and simply with steadfast heart say, I have neither in heaven nor earth a God, nor do I know one outside this flesh, which is gently enfolded in the bosom of the Virgin Mary. When you say this, there is no danger that you will fall away from God or your mind be distressed with terror or desperate fear. By every other way, God is incomprehensible. Only in the flesh of Christ is he comprehensible. And if you, if you sort of uh, reflect on that passage, it becomes evident how quickly and how easily we make God in our own image, how we look for, we look for God apart from Christ, um, and apart from Christ in the flesh, on the cross, and on the altar. Um, and when we do that, what we find is a God who's beyond comprehension and, 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 and wrathful and demanding righteousness that we don't have. Um, so you can think about, you think about the, ways that we, the ways that we do this. So, um, you know, when we when we expect that our, our our comfort or our strength is in is in money, you know, or in or even in family um, or friends, things like that, suddenly we're we're looking to um, looking to a God who didn't suffer, um, who you know expects us to have everything that we want in this life rather than what the things that we need in this life. Um, so it's a it's a it's a tough reality for Christians, but the fact that Christ rises from the dead is our guarantee. It's, that's, that's our hope right there. Okay. Anything else? All right. Well, then, let's, uh, we're pretty close to 10.15. I don't want to run over this time. So, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So, uh, um, no Bible study next week on Good Friday. But then the following week will be chapter 32.